You're listening to ReachMD. Welcome to Genetically Speaking, produced in cooperation with the American Society of Human Genetics, advancing human genetics in science, health, and society. Now here's your host, Dr. Howard Levy, medical geneticist in Lutherville, Maryland, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University, coming to you from the American Society of Human Genetics meeting in San Diego. With me today is Dr. Wiley Burke, clinical geneticist and professor of bioethics and humanities at University of Washington in Seattle. Today, we're discussing ethical issues in genetic testing. Wiley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's start with just a general discussion of as genetic and genomic sequencing starts to become more available. What do you see as the most important ethical issues facing both geneticists as well as healthcare providers in general and even patients? Well, this new technology is challenging uh, because it is so extraordinary in the amount of information that it can provide. So techniques that involve genomic sequencing are techniques where we have uh, the ability to generate uh, the entire DNA sequence of an individual And then we go through an analytic process to try and derive from that DNA sequence clinically useful information. And that could be lots and lots of information. When you do sequencing, you have the potential to generate information that's well beyond uh, what you need to address a patient's particular clinical problem that brought brought them into the office that day. And just to give our listeners an idea of the scale, it's worth discussing just how large the genome is and how many variations we typically see when we sequence an entire genome or an exome. Exome, of course, being just the small percentage, one or two percentage of the genome that codes for specific genes or proteins. Right. Well, let's start with the fact that there are 22,000 genes. Uh, Within each gene are going to be many variations found on testing. Some of those are what we call benign, normal variation, if you will. Uh, Others, we scratch our head. We're not sure whether these are variants that are clinically significant or of unknown significance. And then we have those variants that clearly are associated with health outcomes. So there's a huge analytic process, and necessarily decision-making must be made about which which genes we're going to look at and how... Uh, detailed our analysis is going to be in order to derive clinical information. And of course, you're speaking now, I think, about sequencing an exome for a child or an adult who has a clinical condition that we're trying to understand. That would be the usual way that we'd be using this technology today. Uh, We have an individual come in. That individual may have very unusual clinical findings. We strongly suspect that something genetic is going on, but It doesn't fit a classic picture. We can't necessarily answer the question with uh, standard tests. And that would be the point at which we would go to this kind of sequencing technology. Another place where this kind of technology is seeing increasing use is in cancer. uh, And there we're using uh, sequencing technology to evaluate the tumor. We're looking for genetic changes in the tumor that might give us insight into Uh, therapies for the tumor. Uh, And in order to do the analysis, we would typically compare the genome of the tumor with the genome of the individual, the inherited genome of the individual, in order to figure out what's different in the tumor that might give us insights into how to treat that tumor. 
So this all sounds wonderful. It makes everybody's job easier. It's, it's easier to figure out what might be the cause of somebody's problem. What's the ethical concern here? <laughs> well, the ethical concern is uh, there's far more information than we can really handle. Uh, and we have to have a pathway from the clinical question that generated testing to the analysis we're going to do um, to address the clinical question. And then, and here's where ethics comes in, uh, we have to decide what additional information uh, we might uh, want to pursue. So, for example, if we have an adult who's being worked up because of an unusual neurologic presentation, we think there's something genetic going on, there might be 20 genes, there might be 100 genes that are relevant to that particular neurologic problem. And, of course, those would be assessed in the test. But what about tests for susceptibility to cancer? What about tests for uh, susceptibility to diabetes? Where do we draw the line? Is this different from other fields of medicine? What about x-rays, MRIs, pathology tests? Well, it's different certainly in the sense of scope. Um, the, the, the breadth of information, again, information about 22,000 genes potentially, uh, and any given individual will have millions of places in their sequence where they diverge from normal sequence. Um, that scope alone uh, makes this an unusual problem. I think, too, that the kind of information we can generate from the genome is tremendously heterogeneous. Uh, so we can find out about things uh, that are what we would call classic genetic diseases, the possibility of a genetic change that highly increases the likelihood of an unusual genetic disease. That disease might be treatable, in which case it's a good thing to find out. An inherited susceptibility to colorectal cancer. We have find the person, we put them on an early screening program, we've probably saved their lives. On the other hand, uh, we could be identifying a high risk of future Alzheimer's disease. We have nothing to do to change the course. Is that useful information or not? Some people might like it. Some people might not. It will certainly take a lot of time to explain to patients uh, that option. So, So that's one set of issues. Another set of issues is the many, many gene variants that will raise individuals' risks a little bit for things like coronary heart disease, things like diabetes, things like stroke. How useful is that information? If what we're going to tell them is what we already tell them, uh, eat (laughs) healthy, exercise, et cetera. Sure. Um, So I think the ethics issue is, is partly how do we make decisions about what to offer patients? That's a complicated task. How do we offer things in ways that respect patient diversity of choice. Some people mm-hmm. will want some information and some others won't. Um, and how do we do this in a way that doesn't slow down the healthcare system so much with distractions, with distractions about genetic risks that have nothing to do with the patient central problem that we're all kind of uh, become vastly inefficient. Absolutely. So on the surface, I think most people would respond, and indeed I've seen a number of studies that suggest this is the case, that when a patient is asked, would you want to know if, oh, by the way, we also found you're at risk for having an aneurysm or for having a particular type of cancer? The answer is, well, of course, please tell me. I want to know anything I can to keep me healthy. Why can't we just do that in genetics? Yes, that's a very interesting question. And I think the, the, the answer to it is complicated. 
uh, because it partly is embedded in the difficulty of the technology. The truth is, if you do a DNA sequence, you have a DNA sequence. You have uh, a bunch of A's and T's and G's and C's, and there's a whole lot of work to take that uh, DNA sequence and turn it into clinically meaningful information. Realistically, uh, there is no practical way uh, that we could do a detailed investigation of all 22,000 genes when we do a DNA sequence. We have to make choices. We have to make choices, otherwise there's going to be a big pot of glue sticking up all of our laboratory systems uh, as people try and derive every bit of information they can from the sequence. Uh, we can't do that. It's not feasible. And it's therefore inaccurate to say that once we've done a whole genome, we, we know things about people. We have to make deliberate choices to pull information out of the sequence, subject it to detailed analysis, and then know whether or not someone has a particular clinically meaningful change. Mm -hmm. And it's that deliberate decision-making that I think has huge ethical dimensions. So we've got two layers here. There's the learning the genetic sequence and then trying to interpret and understand what it is. Right. And the sticky part is that workflow of identifying what is significant and what do we reflect back to our patients. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University, and I'm speaking with Dr. Wiley Burke, a clinical geneticist and professor of bioethics and humanities at the University of Washington in Seattle. We're speaking about ethical issues in genetic testing. Wiley, what's going on today to try to solve some of these concerns about how much of exomer genome sequencing to, to report back to patients and doctors? Well, it's, it's important to say that one of the most... Uh, uh, robust efforts is an effort simply to understand what's in the genome. Not only is it difficult uh, to analyze all 22,000 genes in the genome, the truth is that many variants we find currently we don't understand. So before we can make good ethical decisions about what information we want to extract, we need to make sure we understand what that information means. There's a lot of information, there's a lot of research going on that's attempting to correlate changes in the genome with clinical effects. And that's really important. That's kind of a substrate to good decision-making about this information. What's also going on is uh, a number of studies being funded by the National Institutes of Health that are trying to uh, understand better what choices individuals would want to make if offered the opportunity to have whole genome sequence. Uh, these studies, it, many of them involve offering sequencing testing to patients and also offering secondary findings from those uh, sequence tests and figuring out what people want and why. So the secondary findings, again, being those results that were not felt to be related to the reason for doing the test, but turned up anyway and might or might not be significant. And let me say, I think it's very careful to say this, these aren't results that turned up anyway. They are results that we deliberately chose to get from the sequence in addition to the information we got about the patient's clinical problem. Deliberately chose to interpret, but of course, all of the genome would be there if the genome was sequenced, or all of the exome if the exome was sequenced. And of yes. course, what we have today is a starting list from the American College of Medical Genetics of genes that are felt to be important enough to specifically go seek that type of change. Yes, I, I, I want to sort of say a couple of things. I, I don't think it can be emphasized strongly enough 
that having the DNA sequence is not the same as having clinically valuable information. It's a very good um, point. There are two important steps in the process from sequence to clinically valuable information. One of them is uh, to figure out in what ways the individual's DNA sequence differs from what we call reference sequence or quote-unquote normal sequence. Mm -hmm. Uh, but many of those changes will be uninterpretable. Many of those changes will be normal. Uh, only a subset of those changes will, will be changes we can apply clinical meaning to. And that's the second phase. So we figure out what changes are there, and then we go through what is, at this point, a very laborious process to sort out what, uh, which of those changes are actually clinically meaningful. And that's, that's why it's important to remind ourselves that's a very deliberate effort we decide what portions of the DNA sequence to pull down, so to speak, and subject to that detailed analysis. What happens a year from now or 10 years from now as we learn more and reinterpret these genetic changes? It's a good question because this will undoubtedly happen. Areas of the genome that we think uh, we understand, it may turn out in five or 10 years, we didn't understand them as well as we thought. Uh, changes we thought were clinically significant may prove not. More likely, uh, changes that we can't interpret now, we will be able to interpret. So there will be changes. That raises a, a related ethical concern. What duty is there, if any, for healthcare systems to hang on to a sample, to reinterpret it at a future date, and contact someone if something's new? Now, as we think about whether or not we want to impose that kind of duty, this is a very open question right now, um, we have to think about what costs might be entailed in hanging on to samples, in routinely re-evaluating uh, them. And we also have to think about the possibility that 10 years from now, there'll be a whole new set of technologies that make it even easier to get the sequence than it is today. Um, I would say at this point that the current thinking is uh, that labs should hang on to material short term so that within two or three months of testing, if a question arises, we might want to go back to the sequence and reevaluate, but probably not long term. Uh, rather, the expectation would be if new questions arise in five or ten years, a new test would be done. Sure, but what about not so much a new question, but the sequence data is there and we determine in the future that what we said today was of uncertain significance, and we now know that it is highly significant and confers risk for an important health condition. Yes. How do uh, we manage we, that? Yes. Well, I think the answer how we manage that is we're not sure. Uh, mm -hmm. I think people are struggling with this problem. We do have one example, uh, testing for uh, mutations in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes to identify uh, women at increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer uh, has been available for uh, about 20 years. Uh, and over that time period, we have seen that initial testing has generated lots of results of variants of unknown significance that over time do get resolved. We, don't, we didn't know what they me meant when the test first came through. Three, four, or five years later, we know either that it's benign, so we can reassure the patient, or uh, that it is, in fact, clinically significant. Uh, and uh, the primary lab that has offered that kind of testing has, in fact, developed a system to notify clinicians when AVUS changes. Uh, when 
its status is changed. It is no longer a variant of unknown significance, and we now understand what it means. Um, and then clinicians generally will notify the patient. So we have a model. That's a big burden for all those genes and all those labs. So I'm a big proponent of involving the patients in the care team. I'm a big proponent personally of using the patient portal and sharing data. What about giving people access to their raw genome data and maybe not giving the patients the full responsibility for reinterpreting or asking for help, but what about the idea that we put that data in our patients' hands and they then have the opportunity to ask someone to reinterpret it in the future? It's an interesting idea. Uh, I, I'm a little hesitant about it for, uh, for the reason that I think many patients will need a lot of help uh, interpreting that information. There's an increasing number of providers who will provide a service of interpreting your genome, a commercially available service. But as soon as we say that, we say that some patients will have access to that kind of help and other patients will not. Um, this is an expensive technology. Uh, I think putting the sequence in the hands of the patient may be just fine for a tech-savvy, well-educated, and affluent patient who can seek the kind of help they need to interpret. Uh, but for most patients, that's not going to work very well. So I think we have to think about ways in which we might, as you say, engage patients, but in ways that don't put as much of the technical burden on them. Mm-hmm. So the ever-present issue about disparities and equitable access to care. Right. Really no different from any other new technology, I guess, either. It's a fundamental ethical problem in our system. So yet another thing to think about. That's about all the time we have today. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Wiley Burke, clinical geneticist and professor of bioethics and humanities at the University of Washington in Seattle. We've been discussing ethical issues in genetic testing. I'm your host, Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University. Please join us next time. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Genetically Speaking on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion... You can download this segment and others in the series at reachmd.com slash genetics. Thank you for listening.